Welcome to the Alliance Specialty Podcast, a show dedicated to risk management and professional solutions. Here's your host, Brian Dumpy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Alliance Specialty Podcast Series. I am Brian Dunphy, the Managing Director for Alliance Management Professional Solutions Group. And I'm pleased to be joined today by Steve Chappelle, our Executive Vice President of Claims and Legal, and our Managing Director of our captive group here at Alliant, Seth Madnick. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hello, Brian. Today, we're going to be talking about something which is a Rare occurrence for us in the world of directors and officers liability, but the intersection of DO insurance and captive insurers. Delaware has recently passed a law that's received a lot of publicity as it pertains to the utilization of captives for Delaware organized corporations. And so, Steve, if you can spend a few minutes and talk to us about the history of captives and DO and some of the conversations that have happened in the past, I think it'd be helpful for everyone to provide a little bit of background context. Yeah, thanks, Brian. So the discussion about captives has has really been in and out of DNO for decades, and it's an interesting discussion, right? Because one of the challenges that that exists for DNO in particular is the ability of an entity to indemnify its directors and officers, and particularly directors, and particularly in derivative litigation, a suit brought on behalf of the corporation. And so we've been. A battling this issue for, like I said, decades. And Delaware is an interesting jurisdiction, and it's a jurisdiction where the vast majority of corporations choose to incorporate for many other reasons. But the challenge in Delaware has been that a corporation is not permitted to indemnify a derivative settlement in Delaware, right? They can advance expenses and they can pay the legal expenses in advance, but a settlement is not indemnifiable. It's not authorized by statute. Now, that's in in contrast to many other jurisdictions where we've had this captive discussion. There are a bunch of jurisdictions out there, and if anybody wants to know whether a particular jurisdiction is different from Delaware, feel free to reach out to me. But there are a lot of jurisdictions that allow indemnification. And so we've been having this captive discussion because the law will allow an entity in Pickett, right, Nevada, to indemnify its directors for a derivative settlement. Therefore, a captive is a more viable tool, and we've been talking about and exploring that in, in jurisdictions like Nevada, like Indiana, like Minnesota, like Maryland. So the, the challenge here is, while this is an interesting development, and um, I'll say a positive development in Delaware, it, it doesn't solve a whole lot of the problem, right? You, a corporation still cannot indemnify its directors for a derivative settlement, but they can form a captive, fund a captive to pay it. And, you know, and I'll talk, you know, and, and one of the challenges with that is you, you then are left looking to a captive for Delaware for a derivative settlement. And there are a lot of restrictions. So one of the things the Delaware legislation does is add some guardrails in there to make sure that there's no ability to indemnify somebody that in the legislator's view shouldn't be indemnified which creates a lot of challenges. And and in my opinion, right, I I think I'd rather have some really bespoke DNO insurance wording to deal with rather than this language that's in the statute, which is captive can't pay for a claim based upon rising out of or attributable to certain conduct, right, where we can narrow that language and we do narrow that language in a DNO policy 
and, and in addition to that, right, you have numerous layers of insurance and with difference in condition where insurers are really sitting on top of and dropping down where an, an insurer fails to perform. So, so that's one of the challenges I see with the use of a captive. The other really significant issue I want to highlight is this is a one of many gaps in indemnification. And while the, the statute does not allow indemnification, it does allow you to form a captive to pay what the corporation would otherwise not be allowed to, to indemnify. And that's good on a derivative. But the issue that we need to consider is there are other gaps in indemnification that we need to pay attention to. And the glaring one here is under the Securities Exchange Act of 33, a Section 11 claim, when you file for an IPO, the SEC requires you in the filing to state that you acknowledge that the corporation cannot will not indemnify you for a violation of 33 Act. And so there are gaps in indemnification outside of this derivative gap that this amendment seeks to address. And so the fact that you have a captive, you know, SEC is going to have a lot of issues. And this is this is a topic that I've explored for decades is will the SEC allow you to form a captive to indemnify your director for violating Section 11 of the 33 Act when under the law, you're not allowed to indemnify. Can you do indirectly what you can't do directly? And right. that is a huge gap that this doesn't address, right? And, and nor could it address because it's a state issue, not a federal issue. Right. And so, Steve, that's that's great. And thank you. If we zoom out for a second from DNO specifically, Seth, historically speaking, in your work with captives and, and your work with captives is exhaustive and, and it'd be great to hear some of your experiences there. What have companies historically utilized captives for insofar as what do they shift to a captive as opposed to place in a commercially available market? So captives, generally, when you think about it, the single captives with single parent captives are really structured as private or niche insurance companies. They're designed for a specific purpose. And we'll typically see the casualty lines going into a captive uh, lines that the clients either think have a strong underwriting profit or there are areas where there are gaps in coverage or the marketplace simply is not filling that or the, the current conditions, for example, a lot of excess liability markets where the rates are just shooting up at certain industry segments and the clients have the balance sheet to support that. So they'll take on a layer of the risk themselves. So when clients typically form a captive, there's a core group of coverages they're looking at, and then they look to expand or bolt on other lines of coverage. And so the professional liability lines are getting a lot of discussion right now, along with cyber insurance, of what can be added to the core captive. Because when you have a captive, you need a certain critical mass or size to run a small insurance company and to fund the operating expenses. So with that, you have to say, what is really, when you look at it, what is not my exposure, but what is my premium or cash flow dollars flowing into the captive to cover the overhead and the risk charges and support the collateral to my risk-sharing insurance companies with that? So those are some of the factors that, that we look at. Yeah, I think a lot of people hear the word captive and they, they think it's some sort of panacea that can solve very quickly an issue that they may be having in the placement or procurement of, of insurance generally. And so if you can talk a little bit about that setup process, the costs related to that, the funding of the captive, I think that that would be helpful for folks to understand. Sure, well, good questions. Because one of the 
areas you look at is what are the economics? What are the dollars involved here? And to form a captive, you're really forming a small insurance company. And you can have a captive in over 30 states in the United States, plus typical offshore domiciles you see Cayman and Bermuda. But the states compete on capital and surplus requirements and uh, premium tax. They all charge a tax or a fee to have your captive base there. And they all have a minimum capital and surplus requirement. So most states, to form a captive, you need a minimum capitalization of $250,000 as a base as part of what we call a premium to capital or premium to surplus ratio in addition to that. So it can range from your initial capitalization as much as low as three to one, which is for every $3 in premium, you have to have a dollar of capital with a floor of 250000 to as high as four to one or five to one, depending on the lines of coverage and the financial strength of the parent. So if you're running $4 million of premium into your captive, you need a million dollars of capitalization, typically, or higher, a million, two fifty, million three. In addition, you're going to have to have your organization startup. You're going to have to perform a, what we call a feasibility study, actuarial review, where you have to show the regulator what the projected losses are in both an expected and an adverse scenario and show that the captive is adequately funded for the risk exposure for that. So all those factors, it's a process that typically takes, uh, by the time you're gathering the data and running the application process, it's really a four to six month process if you're going to own the captive as a client or a rent a captive or you're renting someone else's facility. It's a two to three month process, depending how fast you can go on the data collection, actuarial review and processing. So that's just getting to the license approval process with the domicile. And then once you're up and running, there's the expenses of actually running the captive. Every jurisdiction, these create white collar jobs. So every jurisdiction wants you to have a, a captive manager that's approved in that state. You have to have actuaries that are approved. Your the captives are managed by their balance sheet or financial statement. So you need an annual actuarial review, an audited financial statement. Captives are C-corps for tax purposes. So you have to file a federal tax return plus all the joys of running a captive insurance, claims administration, reinsurance expense, brokerage, all those other factors. So you're really running a small insurance company, all the expenses that go with that. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that those are certainly not necessarily hurdles for every company, but certainly hurdles for many that would be looking to put DNO through a captive insurance vehicle. And as we sit here today, while well, the last three years of this market cycle has in fact been hard and even for, for the buyers and for us in the, in the brokerage community. For some segments of the, of the market, it certainly has been even cost prohibitive, but it doesn't mean that the insurance is not commercially available as it had been in, in certain previous market cycles. And so when we think about it, what are, again, some of the other factors, Seth, that go into it? There's also the, the manuscripting of the form that has to be taken care of. And even I think one of the things that, that some people confuse about captives is, is the adjudication of a claim. It's not an automatic payment, right? Right. Just like any insurance company policy, you're either, you have to have a policy form that you're underwriting to. And that's, that form is part of the application process. You really have, just like any other line of coverage, you have to have a, a scope of coverage that is agreed upon and is approved by the regulator where you're filing. So you can have more expansive coverage than perhaps what other markets may offer, but it still has to be truly insurance and has to have that. So the claim process itself is just like very similar to a standard insurance process. You will have either 
a third-party claim administrator or in partnership with an insurance company, someone else processing the claim, but you still have all the issues of indemnity. The, is the claim valid? Is it covered? What are the defense costs? The economics of that claim, that doesn't go away. I mean, the captive itself is really becomes a funding mechanism or a way to finance the risk for that. But there will be claims and you have to have a methodology to pay those. So going back to the the size, if you were a premium, just the economics. When you look at a, a single parent captive, just kind of a rule of thumb, you need to look at premium going into the captive north of a million dollars a year to really make the economics work of running a captive. So where is your DNO premium in relation to that? Is it standalone? Can it do that? Or are you bolting it onto an existing captive with other lines of coverage to reach that critical mass? And the more size you have in the captive, the better you have in risk sharing, but it also reduces your operating expenses as a percentage of the premium base so you can afford to, to run the captive. But it also, beyond just the economics, you need a commitment by management or ownership of the company to be actively participating in the captive in the finance side and the claims issues because it's their money. So it's not a passive model. It is really requires a commitment of ownership, if you would, to work with us on helping manage their captive and their claims issue. And Seth, is there a risk? One of the things we worry a lot about in DNO insurance is dilution of limits. If the scenario is like you described, where it's cost prohibited, so you're going to kind of roll this cover into a captive that has other lines of cover, there would be a risk there of diluting the limits available in that captive for a DNO client, right? Well, what you run into is that if there, and that goes to the balance sheet or financial strength of the parent, it's a very good point. What if you have a claim on one line of coverage, I have an adverse scenario, and that really diminishes your capitalization or your surplus, if you would, available for other lines of coverage. So when we do the feasibility studies, we look at an adverse scenario, and there has to be a commitment by management, very right on your point, Steve, is that Without that management commitment to put new capital in the captive, you're going to be short of money to pay your claims. So that becomes, if you're riding directly with the captive, it's a direct risk. And one of the changes that Delaware brought, we're talking about, is that the captive can now write this coverage directly. But if you're placing that coverage in partnership with a risk-sharing and standard market insurance companies, those companies will want to see collateral or some type of credit, letter credit or trust funds to make sure that there's enough money as a credit margin to pay those claims should the captive run short. Steve, as we think about specifically the perspective of, of directors and officers, the individuals themselves, especially as we think about DNO insurance as a tool used to attract competent and qualified outside directors to act as independent members of the board. From my perspective, I could see the prospect of saying that our DNO insurance is in part handled through a captive as an impediment to attracting that talent simply because of the things that Seth talked about, which is the funding required. Whereas we have certain minimum security requirements for commercial insurers meaning how much capacity or excuse me, how much capital they have in reserve to pay claims. That certainly is called into question if you're blending DNO into a captive along with more volatile casualty lines. That is certainly a reality, Brian, right? Um, you know, directors who sit on these boards are pretty attuned to the issue of DNO insurance and limits, right? They 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 often are high net worth people, sit on multiple boards. They really depend on 
the performance of the this DNO insurance program and the tower, and to your point, right, the, the the financial ratings of each of the carriers on that tower, and so it's critically important, right? When I talk to a board, it's one of the times I I say, look, this is one of the times you've got to think very selfishly, right? How are how are we going to structure? How are, how are you going to make sure that? Your personal assets are protected here because of this gap in indemnification and because of other gaps in indemnification. Selfishly, what is the best way to make sure you're protected, right? And and so this will be a challenge, Brian. It's a great observation. Um, Directors are going to have a lot of questions. And along that line, very few captives are rated by AM Best. And most captives, especially newer ones, do not have enough financial history to go through an AM Best rating. Now, that's not to say you can't go through that process, and it is a, a process, but most captives are not rated by AM Best. So you'll have a non-rated carrier writing this policy directly. And would the customer buy it? If fact, What does that mean to the buying decision? Right. And as we think about the capitalization of a, of a commercial insurer, generally the security requirement is that that insurer maintain a minimum of $250 million in reserve to pay claims. And, and certainly based on Seth, your comments, it certainly doesn't sound like most captives that would be set up would even scratch the surface of that. No, no, <laughs> which, which is why many captives who need that A-rated paper will go enter into fronting arrangements right. with carriers. And then it becomes a credit relationship between the fronting company and the captive and, and that whole issue. And yeah. But it is, a, it is a challenge if you're going to write it directly for this line of business. So listen, gentlemen, I appreciate the time we spent. This conversation could obviously go on for hours. And I know it will evolve over time because there are certainly some things here that we've discussed that, that need to be sorted out and, and probably taken up the chain in in the Delaware legislature for uh, reconsideration. But I think we'll pause there now and and we'll revisit as developments warrant. So thank you very much. And everyone listening, thank you for stopping by and check back in for future podcasts and check in with your Alliant professionals to find out about the more rewarding way to manage risk. 